as you think about it, culture tells you that there are kinds of relationships that you have in your life that kind of define you and make you for who you are. Uh, relationships of things like gender, uh, relationships to your family, relationships uh, of the, the geography that you come from or the ethnicity that you come from or the nationality that you come from. And we live in uh, an era that is hyper-individualistic. And so we have a number of isms that shape us, and one of the ones that shapes us the most is individualism. And if you think about the nature of what individualism is actually saying, is that all of these things that you have, like your family relationship, like your, your gender, your, um, your nationality, ethnicity, your favorite football team, which used to be the saints, like all those things. As you're thinking about those things, our culture says, um, you know what? Um, all of those things are actually hindrances to your flourishing. You, you have all of these relationships that actually are holding you back from who you are. We are such an individualistic culture. In fact, I was reading um, an article the other day where Ross de Thought, I don't know if you've ever read him, excellent writer, uh, really perceptive. He was writing as he was thinking about this recent poll on millennials and what it says about our future. And as he was looking at it, he said in this article, The Age of Individualism, for the New York Times, he said this, in the future it seems there will only be one ism, individualism, and its rule will never end. As for religion, it shall decline. As for marriage, it shall be postponed. As for ideologies, they shall be rejected. As for patriotism, it shall be abandoned. As for strangers, they shall be distrusted. Only pot, selfies, and Facebook will abide, and the greatest of these will probably be Facebook. In other words, millennials have been taught, they've been raised as a generation to be hyper-individualistic. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it looks like this. Here is you by yourself on an island. You need to escape your family, whatever society has said your gender means for you, whatever nationality you have, whatever ethnicity you have, all of those things. You need to escape those entrappings so that you can find the true self, this individual. That's what it looks like to flourish as a human. Now, here's the great tragedy. There was another survey that was done on millennials. And you know what it was discovered about millennials and how they feel at this point in time after living for individualism after years and years and decades? You know, what it, you know what it is they discovered? It is the loneliest generation yet. It is a depressed generation, a generation that has not found that they are flourishing in life as they have been trying to be these absolute individuals. So this way of life does not lead to, to flourishing. It does not lead to joy and happiness. It's not made good on the promises that were sold them. See, our culture says independence is a secret to thriving. And millennials have told us that's not working. I'm not thriving. So don't miss this. Our culture has indoctrinated us that the best way to find your best life is to escape the shackles of all of these relationships to find your true self. But that's not the picture of the Bible. Now, if we go to the pages of the Scriptures, what we find is, is that we actually need a local church to flourish as believers. So we need Jesus if we don't have Jesus yet. 
But as we are connected to Christ, we are connected to his people. Now, you'll remember what a local church is from our churchology series. Local church is like this, right? Now, it's, the local church is a, a people, not a steeple. But I think the picture illustrates what we're trying to talk about. It is a people that you have united with. Uh, baptism is the, the way that we enter into the people of God relationship with Christ and his people. Uh, we know that church discipline is the way that we, we leave out. We know that in the midst of the church, it's a people that are gathered around the preaching of the word and the ordinances or communion. And this picture is what it looks like to live as a people of God together who are on mission together, living as we are called to live as people who have been born again. See, we are an embodied people that take on the name of the triune God, not just individually, but collectively. So don't miss this. Jesus, we are going to see this morning, has given his church a unique kind of authority for loosing and binding in such a way that he says there is a real connection between what happens right here and what happens in heaven. Heaven, again, is not a cloud. But this is the heavenly Zion to where we are going, where God already sits enthroned, where Christ is with him enthroned in heaven. There is a connection, a real meaningful connection between our local church and heaven and what God is already doing there and the future that we have to look forward to. See, Jesus has given us this unique relationship such that what is bound on earth is bound in heaven. What is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. That's why when you get to 1 Corinthians 5 and you see Paul speaking of disciplining someone out of the church, he uses the language of handing someone over to Satan. At that point, some of you are thinking like, Man, Paul sounds like a fundamentalist there. That's like harsh language. I don't know if that language would work with my non-Christian friends. But it's because we don't understand the nature of the way that Paul understood the church. See, he understood that the local church was the zip code, the place, the people where Christ's presence dwelled, where his authority reigned. And in his view, there were only two zip codes. The zip code of being in Christ with the local church and the zip code of being outside of Christ. And who is it that reigns in that place, that geographical location outside of Christ? Well, it's Satan. So it's an observation about the nature of what it means to be inside and outside of God's people. So for Paul, there are only two spiritual zip codes, the church where Jesus is king and the domain of darkness where Satan reigns. Now, one is characterized by flourishing in the Bible, by eternal life. And the other is characterized by perishing and death. And the New Testament says churches have pastors, congregations, and individuals in these local churches. Pastors, congregations, individuals who each owe one another something in this matrix of relationships and that this is the place where God is making and maturing and sending out disciples to make more disciples. So that's what our mission is. Our mission is making disciple-making disciples and planting disciple-making churches. I hope that this message this morning, as we are going through this and looking at what Christ has to say about his church, actually feels like saber-rattling. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I hope that we actually get excited about what God's mission is for us. I hope that you see that it's biblical and that it awakens you with a fresh excitement for life and what God has made you for. So our big idea this morning is this, that Jesus builds local churches 
as an ordinary means of making disciple-making disciples. Let me say it again. Jesus builds local churches as the ordinary means of making disciple-making disciples. So let's go into prayer with the Lord for his help. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning as we come before you, uh, Lord, we pray and ask that this morning your scriptures themselves would clarify your calling for your church. Lord, that you would give us a heart for making disciple-making disciples, planting disciple-making churches. Lord, that you would give us a zeal for the things that you're zealous about. Lord, do this to the glory of your name we do ask. Amen. So our first point is this. Um, We're going to be in the book of Matthew. You can go ahead and open up to there. But my first point is this. Uh, We have a main point, and everything's going to hang under this. Main point is this. Jesus builds his church to make disciple-making disciples. I think if I just keep repeating that, we won't forget it. Jesus builds his church to make disciple-making disciples. And we see this in Matthew 16, 18, and 28. As I said, we we struggle with individualism. Another problem with individualism is that it fights authority. You know, we live in a a culture that parades example after example of abusive authority before us. It's been a tragedy to see the neglects and also the horrors of the way that authority have been used in our culture. In fact, as a result of this, there are some, and I read this a lot as I'm reading various books and even commentaries, there are some that even argue that any authority is a, is a result of sin. That, that authority in this world, if we really were, were sinless and, and Jesus were to come back, we'd have no more authority and everybody would just do what they wanted. But please don't miss this. The Bible, it never encourages a, an authority that's either omissive on one side, that kind of authority that actually neglects, that doesn't care for a child, a wife, an employee, and the way that they are called to, a way that reflects the care of God. Nor does it uh, encourage a kind, of, uh, a kind of authority that's not omissive, but oppressive, one that is harsh and violent, that, that, that harms. The, Bi- the Bible never encourages either one of those kinds of authority. So when the Bible's talking about authority, it's not those. It's talking about a, a godly kind of authority. Just think about this. You know that authority is good when you experience it well. Good kings, good queens, good pastors, good teachers and coaches, good bosses, good moms and dads, those kinds of authority who are looking to protect and to provide and to love, they cause our hearts to rejoice and soar, don't they? When somebody loves you well and has authority and cares for you well, you say, I I want that. And I'm jealous for others that have it and I don't have it. See, Matthew's gospel has this kind of authority in mind. And he he shows this in three different texts. So we're in Matthew. We're going to start in Matthew 16. And I want you just to open up, hold your finger there, and hang with me because we're going to be moving through. We're going to be tracking through Matthew. So turn first to Matthew 16. And you, look, you can look down to verses 16 to 19. So catch this. Notice Matthew 16. This is the text where Peter makes that good confession. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, he gives the good confession. He responds well. He says in verse 16, this. He says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the, hate, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of the heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And that is a good day. It's too bad Peter, like, is called Satan later in just a couple of verses. But a great day for Peter as he makes the good confession about who Jesus is. See, Peter still lacked understanding that he needed to be able to be used fully by Jesus. He needed Jesus to go to the cross for him. He wasn't able to sort of manufacture a kind of energy for the Lord apart from the cross of Christ and the resurrection. And that's where Jesus locked down a people for himself at the cross. All of those who truly repent and believe at the cross become the people of God. And what an encouragement these verses are. I mean, did you carefully just read what these verses say about you? About Christians? About who you are and what Christ, how he relates to his people? Did you see this? Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And not only that... He says, by the way, my church wins. That's not like an option or uh, maybe this will happen. This is a promise that is given to the people of God. Jesus builds his church. Jesus' church wins. What a promise. But did you also catch that Jesus hands the keys of this kingdom to the church? This is terrifying. Uh, I remember the first time I asked my dad for the keys to his 10-year-old Maxima. He looked at me like I was asking for him to give away like his entire savings and all of his loved possessions and every tennis racket that he had collected over like the last two decades. I mean, he, he looked like, what in the world do you think? You think I would hand my keys to my somewhat rusted out, hasn't been like vacuumed in a, a couple of like months car to you? How reluctant we are to give things that matter. And yet here, Jesus says, I have my kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and I have the keys to that. I have all authority, and I'm handing you those keys. You ever considered that? That's, that's something that's being given to the church? The keys to the kingdom of heaven? You thought, man, I was just thinking I was trying to survive the pickup line at my kid's school. But here Jesus gives the keys to his kingdom, to his people. Now notice how he characterizes this kingdom. He says here, what you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. And don't miss this. Binding here isn't oppressive, it's liberating. Now, I know that binding might sound like, well, I'm getting tied down, a straitjacket. But here binding is a good thing in context. Binding is building. Now you want to be bound on earth. You, you want to be locked down in the church. Being loosed isn't good. Ladies, being locked down in marriage to a godly Christ-like man is a good thing. It's a good thing. Being locked down by a bad dude, doesn't love Jesus, doesn't love you, doesn't have a job, not a good thing, right? Being locked down can be good, it can be bad, it depends on who you're being locked down with. And kids, your parents locking the doors at your home at night, it's a good thing because it makes you feel safe. You know, it's safe when you're in a home with your parents and the doors are locked and they're protecting you. They're providing for you, right? 
See, we don't want Christ to let us go, do we? We want to be bound to him. Being loosed is bad. But also, did you catch that binding on earth means being bound in heaven? Like, it's not just a good thing to be bound here, but it says something about a relationship to a greater reality that we are bound in heaven. See, I love the author of Hebrews. He's speaking about the local church. And in Hebrews 12, he says this, but you have come, speaking to Christians, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Did you catch what he's saying? Members of this local church that I'm speaking to, Hebrews is saying, It's not that you will come to this, but you have already come to Mount Zion. Did you know that? The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That is, by faith, as you are united with Jesus, what has happened to you, there is a real, strong, transcendent bond between you and the Son, such that when you put your faith in Christ, it's as if you're already there. Why? Because what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. There is an otherworldly kind of authority that Jesus gives his church and specifically local churches build on the good confession of Jesus Christ. Now at this point, my Catholic friends would say something like this, but didn't Jesus give the power of the keys to to Peter here in this verse? It looks like Peter and later popes are the ones who have this, not the church as a whole. And then some of my Presbyterians and my Bible church friends would say, but didn't Jesus give the keys to pastors or church leaders, not the congregation? Others say this speaks of the universal church, not local churches. But catch how Matthew 18, 18 to 20 clarifies this. Notice second, Jesus joins local churches in binding and loosing. He joins them. His presence is with them. We see that in chapter 18. Now, Kanye West recently held a service of sorts with a choir, and uh, it, was, it was really interesting. Um, in this service, he, he had his choir sing, it was beautiful, this song called Anchored. Uh, and and it, it says in this word, of these lines in this song, it says this, by your power, we're set free. Where two or three are gathered, you're there in the midst. And I could name a dozen songs that use where two or three are gathered in this way. Now, the image that I get when I I read this is something like, you know, we show up and get the music started. Jesus shows up late to the service because he says, this is a good service worthy of coming into. And he comes up beside you and kind of grabs your hips and raises his hand and sways with you, right? It's like a a, a symbol of sort of the, the beautiful sort of experience of worship that Jesus is there when two or three are gathered. I don't think that that's not true when Christ's people gather together, that he's not with them in a unique way. But is that what this text is saying? See, a number of good-sounding songs connect two or three gathering with freedom and Christ's presence, but I think they confuse the image. See, is loosing or freedom good in Matthew 16? Is that the image, that it's good to be free and loose in the way that Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 speak of? See, Jesus says in Matthew 18, you don't want to be set free here in this way. You don't want to be loosed 
here. See, Jesus highlights that certain victory for the church doesn't mean no individuals in the local church will fail and be loosed. In context, Jesus has just told his disciples how to relate to someone living in unrepentant sin. He says, look, you you go and you seek to, to be reconciled privately, and if that doesn't work, take two or three witnesses. Just like in the Old Testament, when they had a legal case, they had to have two or three witnesses, and they would testify against a wrongdoer. So if they refuse to listen to you at that point, you then finally take it to the church as the final authority. Now, what is the church here? It's a local church led by pastors or elders, same thing, with members committed to living out the one another's of the New Testament together. But notice that Jesus does not say, take it to Peter. And he doesn't say, take it to the elders. I mean, I think if he meant take it to the elders, he would say, take it to the elders. In fact, it's kind of early even to mention church in Matthew, so I'm pretty sure he meant church. He says, tell it to the church. The local church has the power of the keys. So what he says in Matthew 18, 18 to 20 is this. He says in verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, sound familiar, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So don't miss this. Jesus is fully God. Have you ever thought about that? He is fully God. That means he is always with his people. There is no place that we can hide from the presence of Jesus. But here Jesus speaks of a specific kind of presence where two or three are gathered, he's with them in the binding and loosing in the context of local church discipline. So they are agreeing about releasing or loosing someone from the church membership in the name of the Father who is in heaven and Jesus who is present here on earth with us in that judgment. So don't miss this. Being bound to Christ leads to the truest freedom and flourishing for which our hearts long. We were made to be bound up with the people of God so that we can experience what does it look like to live a born-again life. We were given to a born-again people. The culture says being bound to the church leads to a diminishing life. Philosophers will tell you that the church is really either a crutch for the weak or a straitjacket for the strong or that it is, in some sense, a kind of cause for all of our earthly woes. And yet Jesus says, if you want to soar to heaven, catch this? If you want to soar to heaven, to flourish in this life on earth and in the future that is to come, you need to be bound on earth in a local church that is anchored to that heavenly assembly. So Jesus gave gospel-proclaiming, gospel-believing churches this responsibility of holding the keys of the kingdom. Just catch this, Christians. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen somebody that carried like a big set of keys such that it like made him walk different. I had a janitor one time that carried, I kid you not, it was like an eight foot ring on his pants with keys all the way around, like sticking outside like a sun. And he had to walk like this. And all of that was his responsibility that he was carrying around with him, and it changed the way that he walks. 
And I'm just wondering as we leave this place today, as we get through with this sermon, if some of us should be walking a little bit differently because we understand the keys that have been entrusted to us by Christ himself. Does that make sense? It's a good thing. It's a, it's a noble responsibility, something that we should sense and take seriously. It's not just the pastors that have a key to the worship center. I mean, maybe literally, but like the, theologically, we know that we all do. In fact, I once asked an Anglican brother how he interpreted this very text because he doesn't believe that the members have a right to have a say or any kind of voting rights for anything. They, they are in, in charge. They make decisions. And when I asked him this, he immediately jumped away from the Bible to his experience. And this is what he said. I'm scared that if I give authority to the congregation to vote on things like church membership, it would turn to chaos. I stopped in midstream and said, brother, authority is not yours to give. You are withholding the keys of the kingdom, of the authority that God himself has already given his church. And you will have to give an account for that one day. So we want you to know you have these keys entrusted to you. We should take them seriously. That's why we vote on members in and out of Trinity Bible Church. We believe that Jesus says this is one way that we exercise the power of the keys, and it seems that Jesus says we will each be accountable for how we hold those keys on the last day. But here's something more. So important that you feel the glorious weight of responsibility of what you've been entrusted with, the care of souls. That is one thing that God has called you to as a believer, to care about the souls of others. He, he has created you. He has called you to be born again, to love his people, to love his body. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. Now, here's the concern. There was a recent study I've told you about before by Duke where they were studying megachurches and trying to understand, like, why are so many small churches dying, megachurches growing? And in this survey, and, and we're not against megachurches. Like, there are healthy megachurches. There are unhealthy megachurches. There are healthy small churches. There are unhealthy small churches. But here's what they found, something that was alarming. That one of the number one priorities of people going to megachurches was the concern of anonymity. He said, this is what they value. They, they want to be sort of like able to slide in and slide out, nobody to know them, so they can kind of deal out their faith on their own and not really be held accountable or like have to give answers to people. They like anonymity. Here's the problem. This kind of anonymity is completely contrary to the accountability that Jesus teaches is necessary for a healthy Christian walk. So if you really want to mature in your faith, and it's not just lip service, but you really do want to do it in the way that God has called you to, it means that you need to be known. And God has made you to be known in the context of his people. See, anonymity leads to an immature faith. I love the way that uh, Matt Chandler put this in a video. Uh, he was talking about the way that, um, you know, it's, it's really natural to see an infant breastfeeding, right? Like you expect that. Uh, really unnatural for you to see a 20-year-old breastfeeding. And the same true is spiritually. You know, you expect someone who's been walking with the Lord for some time to have a maturity about them, that they should be moving on to the meat of the word and loving it and loving God's word and God's people. And accountability is what helps draw us up into that so that we are changed and shaped and transformed to look more like Jesus. You know, the more we know Jesus, the better we are at handling the authority that has been entrusted to us, the more that we look self-giving and sacrificial in our leadership and our authority. See, I'm arguing that these verses help us understand the great commission better in Matthew 28. Now, just hang with me. 
We've been spending time in Matthew 16 and 18, and you're like, what's the mission? And I think this gives context to the mission of the people of God in Matthew chapter 28. Now, there's where you find our mission as a church and how we as Christians join Christ in that mission. So we're about not just making decisions. We want decisions for Jesus Christ. We want to see people baptized all the time. But we don't just want to get you wet. We want to see you follow Christ with your life more and more day by day. We want to make disciples. Now here's where we see this happen in in Matthew 28. Here we see that Jesus builds local churches as the ordinary means of making disciples making disciples. So if I'm right, Matthew 16 and 18 should help us understand Matthew 28. Now remember in those texts, Jesus connects building his church, right, building and binding, with his presence and the exercising of the keys of the kingdom in binding and loosing. All of those things are going together. Losing or loosing is putting people out of membership in Matthew 18. And I would argue that binding means building the kingdom by making disciples through baptizing them and teaching them to observe all of Jesus' teachings. So binding looks like. So as we read 18 to 20, take note of how these same ideas of authority and Jesus' presence and the joining of heaven and earth are given to the disciples who are to make disciples. The resurrected Jesus Christ, these are his final words to his disciples in Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. He has to say this in verses 18 to 28. All authority and heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did you catch that? All authority has been given to me I want you to go make disciples, and I am with you always. Now, in what way is he with you always? Is it to bring comfort and warmth? Absolutely. But hasn't he just talked about the kind of authority that has been given to him on heaven and earth, that there's a connection between the two? And and here, I believe that what he's saying is, I want you to go out about my business of making disciples, making disciples. Don't miss this. Jesus already said that his authority rests with the local church in loosing. And once Jesus gives his Holy Spirit to his people, he tells them to go and build a spiritual kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So binding, building, and making disciples go hand in hand. And don't miss this. The original disciples were called to go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing and teaching them to follow everything that Jesus taught. So here's the question. What's a disciple? Are all Christians disciples? I had a professor one one time tell me that not all disciples, like not all Christians were disciples, like disciples were some sort of super group of Christian. I I don't see that as being the case. I I think the New Testament with the great, you know, like efforts to show that Peter was not Superman, right? Like we are humans. Jesus is the God man. I think every Christian is a disciple. A disciple is not an apostle. He's not a super Christian. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. And once you're a disciple, what do you do? What do I do now that I'm a disciple? Is I just like, great, I can sit here and just glory in my being a disciple. Well, no, he says, okay, you're a disciple? Okay, loop around and read Matthew 28, 18 to 20 again. What does it say? 
What's your job as a disciple? Well, it says disciples go make disciples. Huh. Like all disciples? Yeah. Every disciple, your job is to make a disciple. Make disciples of those who are lost. Evangelize them towards faith in Christ. And those who come to faith in Christ, you're, you're helping them as babies, like mature, so there's not breastfeeding at 20, right? Like you're helping them to see what does it look like to be a mature believer. You're walking with them. You're committing to them. See, that is the, the calling of the Christian. As you scatter to make disciples, what do you tell other disciples they need to grow? Uh, they need to gather in committed relationship in the context of a local church. If you're a disciple, you're telling people you need to be a disciple. And part of discipleship is loving your local church. That is part of Jesus' evangelistic program for the world. That's part of his program for maturing disciples this side of heaven. That you would love other Christians in this context and then go and tell others about the love of Christ. See, they need to gather in committed relationship in the local church. But don't miss this. If you're a disciple, Jesus says you need to make disciples. Do you hear that? It is your mission and purpose in life to make disciples, all of us, not because you have a paycheck to do it, but because you have been purchased with the blood of Jesus to make disciples. Maybe one of the reasons, if you are a Christian, that you're struggling right now with like, I don't know what my reason and purpose in life is, or if I'm really being used to the fullness of the potential of my life, is that you are made to make disciples and you're not making disciples. Have you thought about that? There are good things that God has for you that you've just said, you know what, I'm just not opting into that particular amenity of Christianity. It's not an amenity. It's basic Christianity. It's what like spiritual breathing looks like for the people of God, that you are looking to make disciples of others. Who are you making disciples of? Your kids. Like if if you were just to, to focus on making disciples of your kids, what a noble task. It's not just that, but a noble task that God has entrusted you with humans for hopefully 18 years of life, and they don't live on your couch after that. And then after that, right, they are prepared to go and make disciples of others, and they love Jesus. What about the people that you have in your family who do not know Jesus? Your brothers and your sisters and your cousins who are not promised another day. Are we eager to make disciples of them? What about your coworkers? Like you're working with people every day. Some of them you know do not love Jesus. And you've got to be like super careful in the culture that we live in about how you witness to people in the workplace where it could cost you your job. But you're thinking creatively about how do I share Christ with someone who might go to hell tomorrow. Do you see it? Life-giving. God has caused you to be born again so that you actually would become an emissary of life to others who are dying. We were raised spiritually from the dead by Jesus to be a tributary of the fountain of living waters. In other words, our flourishing as disciples will lead to spiritual life and blessing for others. I'm saying that committing yourself to a local church, tethered to the heavenly assembly, is critical to the mission of God. Jesus says the local church has authority for binding and loosing disciples. Now, I know that here's where some say, wait, what? I don't see the local church in Matthew 28. And I would just argue a couple of things really quickly. First, you have to read Matthew 28 in light of Matthew 16 and 18. Matthew wrote all of it. And it seems that that's exactly what he's doing, is connecting these ideas. And second, isn't this exactly what we witnessed happening in Acts 2 at Pentecost? Peter is preaching his first sermon, right, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as he does, he's preaching from the Old Testament. As he's preaching this text, what's happening? Jesus, we find, 
sends the Holy Spirit to his people. I love it. The gospel goes out, the Spirit comes down, and the church springs up. Did you see that? I mean, immediately. As soon as he preaches, the church is created. Verses 2, 41 to 42 in Acts says this. Those who received this word from Peter, his preaching, were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves, catch this, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. They were having church before it was called church. Do you see it? That's what happens. Born-again believers breathe the air of the local church and love it. Now, do you think that maybe that's why Paul calls the church the body of Christ? If you've been connected to Jesus, you're connected to the body. And if you are connected to Jesus, you will be connected to his people, an embodied people. And do you think that maybe this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 that Jesus gave every Christian spiritual gifts. If you're a Christian, you have spiritual gifts, right? For the purpose not of building up yourself. He tries to make that super clear. And then he goes on to say, it's not for you individually, but what? For the building up of the church. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and the purpose of of the Holy Spirit is to give you gifts and, and, and seal you. And also those gifts are for what? The purpose of building up the church and embodied people who you're living in related, uh, committed relationship with. See, here Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, 12 says this, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, you want to see the Spirit at work? Do this, strive to excel in building up the church. You want to see the Spirit come down? Love your church. Be sacrificial in that love. God will do things that will amaze you. And Jesus said, I will build my church. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, I will build my church. And then he says, I want you to use your spiritual gifts for building up the church. In other words, we are carrying out the mission of Jesus of building up his church. See, Jesus' authority, power, and presence is with his people as they bind the lost, build up the found, and loose those refusing to live a life of repentance and faith. Christian, I'm just wondering, did you know this is the mission that you were made for? Did you know that? You were made for this. Do you you see that the reasons that the disciples planted churches of disciple-making disciples who went out and planted more churches is because of this great commission? They understood the great commission to be about planting more churches in more places. This mission isn't an optional amenity. It's the basic model of Christianity. That is why in a book that's so centered on the supremacy of Christ, Hebrews encourages the church in this way. See, Christ is better than all these things. And he says this in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see that day drawing near. Now, quick question. Any of you want to say today that you don't need to be stirred up? Is anybody here that's like, I mean, my life is so good, I come in just ready to give. I don't ever need to be stirred up. Like, that's not the world that we live in. We, we need Jesus to come back, and we need to be reminded that he is coming back week in and week out, stirred up towards love and good works. How much time are you spending with other humans, other Christians, other non-Christians? If you're engaged in Christ's mission, you are in need of Christ's people. And the more that you engage, the more that you realize that you need, and the more hopeful you should become. In fact, that's one of the beautiful promises of 1 John. As we gather together in the context of a local church, we become disciple, better disciples, more mature disciples, at least in this way. We become more assured of our salvation. Did you know that? Your love and sacrificial love for one another. 1 John 4, beautiful verse 7, says, 
Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And in context, he's talking about loving other brothers and sisters that they can see. I want to know that I really know God. Well, how are you doing it? Loving his body that you have committed yourself to. As you love them more, I hope that your hope and confidence in Christ's return source for Jesus' return. See, laying down your life for other Christians bolsters your assurance of eternal life and your readiness for his return. When we gather well, we scatter to witness better. Now, if the local church is central to Christ's mission of making disciples, that's why we as a church, as leadership, believe that our calling is also to plant disciple-making churches in whatever ways God enables us to do that. Right now, we are supporting some folks that are planting churches in different ways, financially. Sometimes, hopefully, we, we hope that we can maybe send people, maybe part of, of planting churches. We don't know how the Lord's going to use us in this, but we're engaging in whatever ways the Lord enables us to. I recently had the opportunity to hear a missiologist who was sharing about missions, and uh, you know that for missions, many evangelicals have been focused on unreached people, right? So unreached people groups, people that have not heard the gospel. It's a good thing. It's a noble task. Here's the problem. They found a problem. This missiologist said after four decades, what I found is where we go and we reach unreached people, but we do not plan a church, there's always regress, not progress. In other words, it might be good for a day. We've got a Christian of this people group, but then because we have no church, like once they're gone, you don't have Christians that are in that people group anymore. But here's the other thing that we found that's encouraging. When we do plant a church in these unreached people groups, they go and they plant other churches. So instead of regress, we have progress. So we want to be about the business of planting churches where there are no churches. See, when we don't, we lose ground. But where there is a church planted, we see progress for the gospel. See, that's a passion that's going to guide how we spend our mission dollars in the future because we want to be on God's mission. Now, you'll hear more about this later, but for now, I want to close with this. I know that you might be thinking that the local church, yeah, it's, it's good for bringing domesticated sinners to Jesus, right? You know what I mean by a domesticated sinner? Like, oh yeah, there's this guy and he grew up in the church and he's heard the gospel, but he hasn't believed it and if he just comes to my church and like, he likes the people, then he'll say, like, i got to get serious about Jesus and that kind of thing. That kind of guy I think the local church can be helpful for. Uh, here's the thing, before I move on, there's no such thing as a domesticated Christian or, or non-Christian. There's no such thing as a domesticated sinner. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus is most often talking to those who are religious, who know the scriptures, and yet do not know Christ. In fact, they use those things to build self-righteousness rather than Christ-righteousness. Sometimes I think it's harder for the domesticated sinner to actually truly find faith in Christ. But you might be thinking to yourself, despite all that, that Christ might be able to reach that person, but not hard sinners, people who really are far from God. Can a local church really help them? Well, I want you to know that the compelling love of a local church committed to making disciples together can make disciples of people who are far from God. And we've seen it. We've testified to it. In fact, uh, we've got a new series of, of videos that we're going to be coming out with periodically called Gospel in the Ground. And these are videos about testimonies of the way that the gospel message takes root and actually affects people in real time and the way that that gospel is breathing life into their lives on the ground level of their everyday experiences. This morning we're going to be playing one of the first ones and it's a testimony of a good friend and brother of mine, B. Uh, so we're about to play a testimony from B, and that's going to be my, my conclusion. But he is just an illustration of the power of the gospel and the local church to influence, shape, and change every life. 
So let's go ahead and play that and we'll be close.